Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. The last couple weeks, we've been unpacking a little bit of theology. I've had two Theology Explainer episodes. One covered communion, and the other covered creation. So it's been a couple weeks since our last episode in the book of Luke. We left off in Luke with Jesus giving this powerful sermon. Now, today we're going to see two events that will show Jesus is not just going for one group of people. We are going to see that he is for anyone who would believe, anyone in whom he finds faith. So with that, we're in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Quote, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. End quote. I know, I know. We're hitting pause after just one verse already. But I just want to point out one quick itty-bitty little detail out to you. So the word Luke uses here that we translate as finished is a little odd. And when odd words pop up, it is significant. He uses this word eplerison which is usually translated as fulfilled. So think accomplished, right? Consider how that fits into the verse. Think about this way. He says, after he had fulfilled all his sayings, after he had accomplished all his sayings, it suggests that Jesus is moving to a new stage, another stage or goal of his ministry. So most of Luke to this point has been dedicated to the Jews. Jesus was mainly in the area of Galilee, though not exclusively, but mainly. And we've seen a ton of interaction between Jesus and synagogues or Pharisees. It's been a very Jewish start to his ministry. Now, way back in the introduction, I mentioned how Luke has far more of a focus on Gentiles than most of the other Gospels. So, it does not seem coincidental that as soon as Jesus fulfilled these sayings, fulfilled his sermon, that he immediately moves on to an interaction with a Gentile. But we're going to dip our toes into the Gentile water before we cannonball, and you're going to see what that means in just a moment. Move on to verse 2. Quote, Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is one who built us our synagogue. End quote. I think you probably see what I mean by the whole dip our toes in the Gentile water thing. The Jews didn't love every Gentile. They just didn't. They had great disdain for a lot of them, and there are historical and cultural reasons for that, especially when it comes to the Romans. But there are some who were especially respected. They had righteous resumes, if you will. This centurion's a great example of it. So even though he was a Roman, he had a great relationship with the Jewish leaders. We can see a good relationship with the elders because he sent for them when his beloved servant was ill at the point of death. We don't know what kind of sickness his servant had, just that it was close to killing him. It says the Jews pleaded earnestly. They are invested in this situation. They really care about it. There are so many levels of cultural oddities in this story. But this is the man who built their synagogue. It says that he loved their nation. He has proved his affection for them, means a lot to them. 
Really, I'm not sure there could have been a better figure to help us transition from the Messiah coming to the Jews to showing the Messiah is for everybody. This centurion needs Jesus to heal his servant. And, okay, so because we live in this wild world that has little regard for the truth, I need to clear up something about this passage. There are arguments out there saying that this passage is evidence of Jesus affirming homosexuality, that this centurion and his servant were in a homosexual relationship. Now, a couple things. It is clearly not Jesus affirming homosexuality. It's really almost a silly argument. First of all, Jesus heals sinners throughout the gospel. Every single person Jesus heals in the gospel accounts are sinners in need of grace, right? So that's not affirmation. That is mercy, which every single one of us needs. Now, when he does that, so often he'll say things like, now go and repent or go and sin no more or now follow me, you know, something like that. So that is not him affirming sin, but it is him showing grace to the sinners. That's first of all, okay? Secondly, there is nothing in this text that would imply any homosexual relationship whatsoever. The word we're translating as highly valued is intimos. It shows up five times in the New Testament, twice in reference to honoring Jesus, once to show honor to one of Paul's co-laborers, once to describe a seat of honor, and then in this passage. It means honored. It means highly valued. It means noble or precious. It's a word you would use to show great respect to someone. And the word servant in the Greek is this word dolos, which is the standard, normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill word for servant. Neither word carry any sexual connotation at all. They do not carry heterosexual connotation. They certainly do not carry homosexual connotation. They're just not talking about sex at all. The Matthew account of this story, which really may be a different event, but just a similar one, uses the word pahis, which implies that the servant may actually be a child, which would further underscore the centurion's desperate plea for Jesus to heal him, and further does not point to homosexuality. Any claims to this being a homosexual relationship are inaccurate, and any claim it is Jesus affirming sin is just deceitful. This is a story of a decent man who cares for those who work for him, and perhaps cares a little extra for someone he relies on, or cares extra for a child. I don't know why we have to always apply a 2023 mindset to the ancient world. They were not thinking in categories like we do. This is just a story of a a decent, well-respected man. And I know that may be maybe boring or it may have less intrigue to it, but it's, it's what it is. Moving on to verses 6 through 8. Quote, And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. End quote. 
So just in case you forgot from our little side adventure there, the centurion sends Jewish elders to request Jesus to come to his house. So Jesus sets off and he's on his way. He's coming to heal the manservant. And as Jesus approaches the house, the centurion sends out some buddies, some friends to stop Jesus and to give him a message. He doesn't want to trouble Jesus anymore. He doesn't want to trouble Jesus for him to come just a bit further to the house. He just wants Jesus to say the word, and the centurion knows that his servant will be okay. Now, it is a little awkward in the reading. What could have changed the centurion's plans and request? I mean, with his faith, he could have just asked the Jewish leaders to request Jesus say the word. But he didn't. He initially asked Jesus to come, and then he sends out more people. Hey, you don't have to come all the way. Just say the word. Perhaps they're sitting around the house and they're waiting and someone realizes that Jesus, who is a Jew, may be criticized for going to a Gentile's house. Perhaps they were talking about the power of Jesus and how they respected Jesus and realized that he didn't have to come all the way there to get the job done. We really don't know. Obviously, Jesus could not have cared less what people think about him entering a Gentile's house. But the concern from this centurion is thoughtful, and it is surely 100% meant to be a sign of respect. Let's talk about how this centurion sees Jesus, because that's really an incredible thing. He talks about his own authority, how he just says the word, how he, how he issues commands, and instantly people follow his commands. They do what his word asks. Whether it's a soldier or a servant, it doesn't matter. They obey his command instantly. He is taking that to communicate how he knows that the sickness that is killing his servant must obey the word of Jesus. He clearly understands that Jesus is the real deal. That there is something special and something powerful about Jesus. You must also wonder what else this centurion believes must obey Jesus. I mean, he clearly recognizes that Jesus is someone special, someone with wondrous power. The faith and the recognition of Jesus' power and authority is a sight to behold. I mean, we have seen Jesus heal so many people. And so many people have this sense of wonder about who Jesus is and what Jesus could do. But there has been no one that has articulated it as well as this centurion. Now, this centurion's faith is truly astounding, and you don't have to take my word for it. Just look how Jesus responds. Verse 9, quote, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well, end quote. So Jesus marvels at this man's faith. What a legacy for the centurion. He is now known forever as the guy whose faith made Jesus marvel. For many of us, when we hear that word, we think of a certain massive list of superhero movies, right? But it means, the word marvel means to be filled with wonder. Jesus was filled with wonder at this man's faith. If that's not a legacy to be known by, I don't know what is. Now, Jesus is not down on Israel here. This is not meant to be an insult. He actually says, not even in Israel. If anything, I feel like those are an honoring set of words. It's an implication that one would expect to find a high mark of faith in Israel. I mean, think about it. It is to Israel that God ignited a special relationship. It is Israel that he rescued from Egypt. It is Israel that he provided for and protected in the wilderness. 
It is Israel who he established as a powerful nation. It is Israel that he sent the prophets to, that he revealed his scriptures to, and he was using to bring about the Messiah. Yet, it was a Gentile whose faith was put on display here. I thought of John chapter 4. This is the conversation Jesus has with the woman at the well. So John 4, verses 21 through 23, quote, And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. End quote. Jesus was telling her that God was not limited to the Jews or to Jerusalem. He was looking for a new people who would worship Him in spirit and in truth. You might say Jesus is looking for real, authentic faith. Faith that we see here from the centurion. Yes, salvation is from the Jews because it is from this Jewish people that God brought about the Messiah. But God was not going to hoard. He was not going to restrain the Messiah to one people. But instead, he was going to seek to bring as many people from as many places to the Messiah as would come. If you read the book of Romans specifically, chapters 9 through 11, you'll see God bringing in the Gentiles to what he was doing through Israel. God used Israel to bring the Messiah, but God wants all people to be drawn to the promised Messiah. Paul wrote that the Gentiles are being grafted in to the promises of God. We so often want things to be either this or that, but when it comes to Jews and Gentiles, it is not either Jews or Gentiles, but rather both Jews and Gentiles. The passage we just read and the verses I'm about to read were sovereignly put together to show this wonderful truth. All right, let's move on to verse 11. Quote, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. End quote. Real quick, this town is significant. Now, if you were to go back hundreds of years, this town, Nain, did not exist. But just a few miles away was a city called Shunem, over time, that city's population packed up and moved down the road and established Nain. So it's the same group of people, but just moving a little bit down the street. Now, when you hear Shunem, you might think, hey, that sounds a little bit familiar. It might sound even more familiar if you refer to someone who is from there as a Shumanite, maybe. Okay, here we go. 2 Kings chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Quote, one day Elisha went to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. End quote. Now we're going to skip to verse 16 and 17. Quote, and he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. End quote. Now, fast forward a few years, and tragedy strikes, and the child has died. So Elisha, the prophet, is called back in, and God works through Elisha to raise the child from the dead. Truly a miracle. But you might be wondering, why am I sharing this location in its Old Testament context? Well, check this out. Verse 12, quote, 
As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bear stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. End quote. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus performs the same miracle in the same place that Elisha did way back in 2 Kings 4? Now, in verse 15, it says Jesus gave him back to his mother, which also rings familiarity of that same Elisha passage. And also, it was her only son, which further strengthens the parallel between 2 Kings 4 and Luke chapter 7. And yet, if you read 2 Kings chapter 4, if you read that whole story, you will see that Elisha required some significant effort to raise the child from the dead. Jesus, on the other hand, performed this miracle with ease. What a message to his people. A new prophet has arrived. Someone greater than Elisha. Has arrived. Now, when you think about Elisha, Elisha performed twice as many miracles as Elijah. Elisha was one of the most significant figures in the Old Testament, but here, before the people of Nain, is a prophet, is someone different, someone greater. Let's look at a couple details of these verses. It says that the only son of his mother. Now, 2,000 years ago, without a man in the family, this widow faced certain poverty. She had no way to earn a living going forward. Future prospects were going to be so grim. And as tragic and horrific as all of that is, I am pretty sure it is the last thing on her mind. And look at verse 13 again. Quote, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. End quote. Look at his words. His words, this grieving widow, a woman who had surely been through so much. He says, do not weep. Do you know what makes those words truly compassionate? It's the fact that he had the power to do something about her tears. He is about to dry up every single tear. We always need to ask what passages teach us about God. And we have a very clear answer in this passage. It so clearly teaches that God is both compassionate and active in the lives of his people. He doesn't just wish them well. He doesn't just hope for good things to happen to them. He has the power to bring them about as well. He has the ability to make a difference in their life. And isn't that why we ask for things in prayer? Obviously, prayer is not just about asking God for stuff or for things to happen, but that's a part of prayer. In those prayers, we are actively trusting the compassion of our God towards us. We are trusting that He truly does delight in showing mercy to His people. We are also actively trusting His power to make a difference in our life, in our situation. Verse 16, quote, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited His people. And this report about Him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. End quote. It's pretty natural that everyone's mind was blown here. And the location context I shared with you, I feel like it's a safe bet that that was not lost on the crowd. There's a small town near me called Marshville. It's the hometown of a country singer named Randy Travis. 
And let me tell you, if you drive through Marshville, you will absolutely know it's the hometown of country singer Randy Travis. I just Google imaged Marshville, and two of the first four hits involve Randy Travis. On their sign that says, Welcome to Marshville, it says right under that, Home of Randy Travis. You'll see his face graffitied on walls. They are all in on the Randy Travis train. People hold on to stuff like that. How much more would people in Israel hold on to their hometown being the place where a major prophet did a miracle by the power of God? Where through the power of God, Elisha resurrected a small child. You know that was so ingrained in their identity as a town. But now, hold on. Someone who is clearly greater than Elisha is here. One of the incredible things about the Bible, and really the Old Testament specifically, is that there are so many things that happen in the Old Testament that did really historically happen, but they also serve as a a shadow of the one to come. They like hint at, hey, there's someone coming that's greater than this. In this passage, we see Jesus being greater than Elisha. But if you read through the book of Hebrews, what you're going to see is that Jesus is greater than the angels, that Jesus is greater than Moses, and on and on. Jesus is just greater. It's as if all of the Old Testament was written by the finger of God to show us that there is someone greater coming, and that someone greater is Jesus Christ. Jesus had just done the miraculous work by healing the centurion's servant who was near death. And now he has raised a son of a widow from the dead in a historically rich setting. What we see here is that Jesus is for everybody. He is for all people. He is for all who will believe in him. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20, he says this, quote, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. End quote. Jesus is knocking at the door of the Jews. Jesus is knocking at the door of the Gentiles. He is looking for real, sincere faith. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, end quote. So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because he gives purpose, and that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast.com.